0: From the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham, this is Due South on WUNC. I'm Jeff Tiberi. Thanks for joining us. Artificial intelligence, data privacy, child protection. These are just three of the biggest issues in the world of tech, facing companies, consumers, and policymakers in 2024. Technology impacts our lives in many different ways. And in this rapidly growing and changing industry, the governance around technology often is playing catch-up. Today on Do South, we are talking tech, the state of the industry, what's on the horizon in the months ahead, and where lawmakers might act. Spoiler alert, it won't be in Congress. More likely, it's state capitals. And as it happens, many state legislatures have reconvened this month with more gaveling in in the weeks ahead. Here to help us go micro, macro, synthesize the big world of tech policy as a smart and talented panel, all here in studio. Robin Kaplan is an assistant professor at Duke University's Sanford School of Public Policy and a senior lecturing fellow in the Center for Science and Society at Duke University. Zach Eanes is a reporter with Axios Raleigh. Brooke Medina is vice president of communications at the conservative-leaning John Locke Foundation. And Matt Peralt is director of the Center on Technology Policy at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's also co-author, along with Scott Babwa-Brennan, of a recently published report put out by the Center called The State of State Technology Policy. Welcome to all of you. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. We'll get into the details of that report I mentioned in a little bit. First, really, truly broad to get us going in technology policy. I want you to think through your day this morning thus far, something that you have done this morning that was impacted by tech policy or a lack of tech policy. Matt, I'm turning to you first.
1: So there are lots of use cases, I think, that everybody is aware of, like you check your email when you wake up in the morning. But I find increasingly there are other things that are maybe less intuitive. Like when I checked my son, who's uh, two years old next week, actually into his daycare, I used an app to check him in. And that's how uh, the school knows that he's there and how I'm able to verify that he's there.
0: Happy birthday. Godspeed on potty training. Um, How else has uh, technology impacted technology policy your day or not?
1: Yeah,
2: just as a parent, following up with what Matt said, ordering my kids lunches through the app that they provide at the school, making sure that they're all set there, but also using things like ChatGPT GPT this morning. I had a few prompts that were coming to mind because I wanted to check the performance of different social accounts. And so using prompts like that to make my job a little bit easier, it's a good way to start the day.
3: It wasn't affecting me today, but as a reporter, you know, a lot of our stories people come to them via google or via search engine uh-huh. um and as a company we talk about this a lot is like what happens once you know chad gpt or other ai forms change how we search things online and whether they just give us answers directly without linking to you know an article or a news source um and how that might change how we all consume um information going forward uh so i think that's something you know in the media landscape, we talk a lot about at my company, but I'm really interested to see how that evolves over the next few years. For sure. Robin?
4: My morning was impacted by some recent changes that Spotify has been making to its, um, to its platform. I got into a fight with my husband over our use of Spotify. So I was playing music on the living room speaker and he started um, kind of taking control and bringing the music back onto his phone as he was commuting to work. Um, so that was kind of one kind of small instance.
0: What was playing?
4: Oh, We were playing Rafi. I didn't see what he was playing. Normally it's the Beastie Boys.
0: All right. Noted. <laughs> uh, let's acknowledge near the top here that technology and policy may induce boredom initially for some. But to that point, I want to roll with it, lean in a little bit. I'm interested to hear from all of you as to the why here. So, So I think about other policy discussions that often dominate the conversation. Discussions about abortion, access and regulations, voting access, school funding, uh, gun control. And these are important, of course. But I would note that technology is in all of our lives every day, to some extent, maybe every hour, unless you're going off the grid. Uh, So tell me, if you would, how come tech policy perhaps isn't more front and center?
2: Well, I think in part because it is so immensely ubiquitous at this point in time that it is sort of white noise in the background for many people. Um, When I'm thinking about how legislators tend to interact with tech policy, oftentimes it's a matter of them being digital migrants themselves. The demographics that most legislators tend to fall into is is an older demographic. And so a lot of them haven't even understood the uses of this in a way where they could quite grasp the effects of it. And I mean, some of the other policy issues and hot button issues you mentioned, Jeff, are culture war issues. And that, frankly, tech policy stuff doesn't fundraise well. So I think there is that strategic component from a
4: political angle. Mm -hmm. For sure. I think it is actually coming more to the fore. Um, I think more and more people are contending with the role that technology is playing in their life. We're seeing more bills being proposed at a federal level. We're seeing a lot of bills being proposed internationally. Um, And same as we'll discuss today at the state level um, too. From kind of a basic level, you see more people talking about the role that Facebook and Google and TikTok plays in their lives, the impact it has on the content that they see or they don't see. Um, I think it's becoming a much bigger issue recently.
3: I do wonder if there has been a, a groundswell in the past few years as, you know, frankly, as people's children or themselves use this technology more and, you know, they wonder about the effects. And I, I think the media probably has played a big role by talking about this a lot. Yeah, um, I'd, I'd love to hear how Matt thinks the media's talked about it over time, um, but it's become a narrative. You know, you see it on broadcast network television, and I think people are asking questions they weren't asking five years ago.
0: Thick skin here, Matt. You can you can come at me and Zach if he's okay <laughs> well, with that.
1: Right? I mean, you're you're talking to a room of tech policy folks, so then you get pushback on the idea that tech policy isn't as like sexy and at the fore. I think, and I I agree um, with the others about that. Like politicians talk about pocketbook issues, and I think for many people now, technology is a pocket issue. It's a, like, right? a, a thing that you're carrying in your pocket. Or I know we're going to talk in a little bit about recent laws related to consumption of sexual content. Uh, in North Carolina, um, that's a bedroom issue or, you know, there are other issues that are kitchen issues or uh, related to how you parent your children. So I think for many people, these issues are not just abstractions of some data center far away from them. They're very intimate issues related to how they live their lives.
0: We're often convening uh, with a panel of voices to discuss tech policy here on Do South. Matt Peralt. Robin Kaplan, Zach Eens, and Brooke Medina are all here in studio. Brooke, uh, I've got a follow up for you, but but you've got something to add first.
2: Well, I think that uh, you know what Zach and Robin were saying about it is there is a groundswell that we are seeing, and I think it is effective for politicians in so much as they can tie it to a culture war issue. Mm -hmm. And so there is that battle against big tech. We saw it uh, on the tails of the 2020 election Mm -hmm. and throughout the Trump administration. And so um, I think when they find it politically expedient to really connect it to some other sort of flashpoint in the culture wars, that does seem to be the way in which it comes to the public consciousness a little bit
0: more. Yeah. And you, I guess I want to make a kind of a generic contextual point here. Jump in any of you if you want. Otherwise, we can move on. But you alluded to this a moment ago. By and large, elected officials are old and white. Uh, and my, my parents are alive and well, and they're 76 and 75, and they, they're doing well with technology. But I have wondered, I wondered in the prep for this hour, if lawmakers, the the, the larger body of them, representation was different, if there were more 30- and 40-year-olds in, in state legislatures and in, in, in Congress, if this would be a, a really a much different issue within the, the under the political umbrella.
2: Yeah, I, I think it will. In maybe 20 years, we're going to see those digital natives come of age and uh, take the home, and congress and at state legislatures and because matt pointed out i mean this is a kitchen issue it's a pocket issue it's a bedroom issue it's going to it's going to consume a lot of how we engage as a society and um sort of intellectual property rights all of that's going to come to play much more prominently
4: yeah and younger users are really taking notice of this kind of growing gap in expertise between them and their lawmakers so when when everything was happening with tiktok last year A lot of TikTokers took to the platform and really took issue with the lack of knowledge many of these lawmakers had over how the platform worked, how other platforms worked, including data collection practices specifically. Um, So there is a lot of awareness growing about this real gap that's widening.
0: One more kind of broad question as we as we get into this, and we're going to talk about a number of issues here this hour. But are there any common misconceptions about tech policy or misunderstandings that you encounter in your work, in your research? And you wish at times you could just kind of redirect people and be like, no, 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 that's not what's happening here. That's not really at the heart of the issue. What comes to mind? You're, you're nodding.
4: Yeah. I mean, for me, uh, I think that just as Brooks said, this is often framed in terms of a culture war. I've done a lot of work on content moderation and monetization online, and often one side presents it as an issue that only impacts their side, and that is not true. Um, These are issues that impact all internet users, regardless of their kind of political belief, whether they're posting about makeup videos or politics or family vlogs. Um, A lot of, you know, the impact that platforms have are felt, you know, really across the spectrum.
1: So I (laughs) have three. First, maybe I'd say just pushing back a little on the prior question on the idea that lawmakers are out of touch with technology and technology policy. Let me say um, it real quick: I'm not yeah. saying they're out of
0: touch. I'm saying a younger body of lawmakers might be more in touch.
1: Um, I think that that, that um, that's hard to dispute. That that seems probably right to me. Super, but hard to I, do, I but 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 I do think that. Lawmakers have made real strides in the last five years or so. I testified in Congress on antitrust issues at one point, and the the kinds of questions that I got were more high level and I think more divorced from some of the specifics and nuances of the products than I think we saw in subsequent hearings. Mm -hmm. Like the House Judiciary Committee in D.C. I think showed enormous learning over the last few years about the specific details of various different technology products. I think that's reflected in the specifics of the questions that they've asked um, company representatives. Mm -hmm. The two other uh, issues I'd raise, I think, are more on the company side. One is the idea that tech companies only care about money. Um, that's not consistent with my experience. Most of what I have observed in the tech sector is companies who have very strong mission statements. I think many of them do and have a very strong commitment to the fulfillment of those mis- that mission statement. doesn't mean that they don't make mistakes, but I don't think it's correct to say that the only motivation is financial.
0: I'm going to ask you to save your third misconception after we step aside for just a moment. That's Matt Peralt,
1: director of the Center on
0: Technology Policy at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. We're also here with Brooke Medina from the John Locke Foundation, Zach Eanes from Axios Raleigh, and Robin Kaplan, an assistant professor at Duke University. We're chatting tech policy here on Due South on North Carolina Public Radio, and we'll return in just a moment. Welcome back. It's Do South on WNC. I'm Jeff Tabiri. We're talking about tech policy here on the program today with a, a great panel. And right before the break, Matt Peralt was giving us three of the misconceptions about tech policy that he has noticed and experienced within his work. Uh,
1: but lingering is the third misconception. So the third is the idea that tech laws do not get passed because of lobbying. And that's something I'd love to get thoughts from the other panelists about because um, I'm uncertain about some of my assessments there. But there are lobbyists in Brussels, in Europe, and Europe has passed a variety of different incredibly impactful tech reforms. There are lobbyists at the state level. And as I think we'll talk about in, in a little bit, states have taken a lot of steps to enact new laws and tech policy. In our report, we tracked that states enacted 65 laws in 2023. Congress enacted, I think the right number is zero. I think zero. zero, zero, zero. Uh, maybe there maybe there are other people who can uh, list some of the tech related p- uh, laws that Congress enacted last year, but I think the right count is zero. Um, and there are tech lobbyists at the state level, at the federal level, at the international level. And so I don't want to say that lobbying is not impactful at all. I think that's not true. but the idea is that the idea that's pushed by many people is that lobbyists are the reasons that certain things don't happen. and I think there are a whole bunch of different other factors that uh, inform what actually gets passed and what doesn't.
3: Yeah, I was going to say that maybe one misconception just to, to build off that is that, you know, if the U.S. doesn't set policy, Europe is in a lot of ways because it's such a large market that a lot of the tech companies here have to follow fall in line with them. And so I think that's something most people probably don't think about or realize mm-hmm. is that the EU really is shaping a lot of the way we, you know, are on the Internet and you know, consuming data and social media sites and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, go ahead.
4: So, yeah, tech companies have a tendency to kind of build the lowest common denominator. So if they see something passing elsewhere, they'll build to, to that standard, which is really interesting. So we, our, our kind of use of the Internet can really be impacted by regulations being passed mm-hmm. abroad. I will say in terms of lobbying, you know, there is research that's happening right now looking at the impact of lobbying, specifically in the context of the Digital Services Act, which is the major reform that passed in Europe. Where we really do see the impact of lobbying over the last few years, though, is in things like delivery drivers and minimum wage and Uber and Airbnb. There's lots of areas where we can already see the impact of of lobbying. Now there has been a lot of laws that have been passed at the local and state level um, regarding kind of those aspects of technology policy.
0: I want to follow up on something you just said, Zach, and someone, please go deeper on it. it. Might be Zach. Brussels is having more of an impact on tech around the
3: world than Washington, and why? Well, I mean, I think even if you look just at, like, antitrust is one element of all this, but, I mean, there was two very large mergers that the UK, not Brussels, kind of put the clamps on, and those deals sort of fell apart, that, you know, Activision and Microsoft being one, and correct me if I'm wrong, Matt, and then um, the Figma and uh, Adobe acquisition, and I think that sent probably a chill throughout, you know the tech ecosystem in the U.S. That so the
1: Activision deal actually did end up closing okay. eventually, but it certainly is correct that that Europe, I'd say, not just. It's not just that it has a little more impact than Washington. It's had dramatically more impact. The D- Digital Markets Act and Antitrust and the Digital Services Act Act and Content Moderation are really shaping the way companies build their products to the point that Robin just made.
0: And, and is that a societal difference? Does it bespeak a societal difference in Europe? Does it bespeak just the, the the grinding of the gears in Congress? Like, why is Europe ahead of Washington on this? Or am I just being overly Well, motivated? so, so, so again, there I
1: think, there's, I, I think there, there are tech policy lobbyists in Brussels. And, there, and so it's not that lobbyists only exist in Washington. So mm-hmm. I don't think that that explains at least all of the difference. I do think that Europe has a culture that is more oriented around uh, regulation. They're more pro-regulation. And so and there, there's an, there are also structural factors. So there's an absence of a filibuster, for instance, which has stood in the way of some of the tech regulation in D.C. And those structural issues, I think, are why we're seeing something different at the state level, because many states don't have filibusters and many states do have single party control.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, something I would also say is a factor is the fact that we have the First Amendment here in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so that comes into the conversation a lot as far as what is the digital public square? what uh, where are the guardrails around it? who what qualifies a speech in a digital age? Whereas in Europe, uh, yes, I think they are definitely more just uh, they they have a propensity toward regulation. um, but also we have that backstop where some of the things that would not fly, Over there in Europe, or that would not fly over here, would fly over in Europe. And um, what we're seeing, though, are companies just making that decision to Robin's point about just taking the lowest common denominator and rallying around that to make it easy. Because again, tech works across any sort of boundary line. And so they
4: have to make sure that they remain solvent. Yeah. And tech companies have been preparing for this for some time. So you notice in a lot of their language, they kind of move away from this concept of freedom of speech towards a concept of kind of freedom of expression or building community norms or like trying to decide what is in and outside of their community. Um, and so they've been kind of moving away from this concept for for some time now.
0: We're talking tech policy here on South. Uh, As a quick reminder, you can always engage with us. Questions, comments, concerns, email us at DoSouth at WDUNC.org. You can learn more and find past episodes as well at DoSouthRadio.org. Matt, you recently published a report titled The State of the State Technology Policy, which you co-wrote with Scott Babwa Brennan. So I want to go from Europe to Washington and, and now really to to Raleigh and, and Austin and Springfield, the state capitals. Why did you focus on the state
1: level? Because states are governing in tech policy. So we, from a methodological perspective, we felt like it was really important not to just track debates. So not to look at bills that have been introduced, for instance, but rather to look at bills that have actually been passed. There's lots of smoke in D.C. on this issue. Lots of bills are introduced there are lots of hearings um, where representatives have strong language for tech company executives, but very, very little gets passed. That's not true at the state level. We focused on six issues um, AI, child safety, content moderation, taxation, antitrust, privacy. And in those areas, we tracked 65 bills that were passed at the state level. Those are bills that are actually resulting in changes of law that influence the rights that people have online and influence what companies are able to provide to their users. And so if you're interested in understanding, What tech policy really looks like today in terms of the actual laws on the books, you have to look at state capitals.
0: I want to uh, widen the lens only for a moment and just note, as I think listeners of our program have probably picked up on and heard me say across these last couple of months, this is not unique to tech, right? Like Congress is unable to to function and really uh, move forward in so many different things. Education is is one, right? Like education funding is so nuanced and, and varies across the country, but there's so many different topics where there's much less going on in Washington, despite these large hordes of journalists who I love, of course. There's more happening at state legislatures, even if there aren't as many, uh, as us journalists and reporters tracking it. So j- just a sidebar there, uh, 65 pieces of legislation passed at state legislatures in 2023 across the country. Do any jump out or any worth noting to our listeners is like, Oh, this was really interesting. This was a breakthrough for whatever
1: reason. Yeah. So the, the, the legislation that I think the type of legislation that was really prominent in 2023 was child safety legislation. So we identified 23 laws that were passed in 13 States last year. Um, that was an increasing topic of conversation, I think, because of because essentially of parent interest in protecting children online and concerns that parents have about the experiences that their kids have online, um, how their kids view themselves and relate to other people because of content that they see online. And so that generated a significant amount of legislative activity. There's also a big spike in artificial intelligence legislation. We tracked 20 laws in 15 states. I think the reasons for that are pretty obvious. After the introduction of ChatGPT uh, in November of 2022, there was a lot more interest in that. Again, that's an issue where the federal government has talked about taking action, but at least in Congress, they've done very little to date.
0: Brooke, what is stalling out at the federal level from a policy standpoint and why?
2: Well, I think uh, it seems to be that over the past decade or so, Congress is, uh inability to pass anything is, is you know, is quite simple. It is just there is so much factionalization. There is very little bipartisan ability to move forward with meaningful legislation. But also, I mean, I could also look at it and argue it from a positive standpoint that States are the test labs of liberty. And so being able to do this at a state level and have these conversations closer to home is actually a good thing. So even though Congress might be ineffective in many ways for a variety of reasons that are negative, I think there is a positive to the state legislatures uh, hashing
4: this out themselves. I mean, one of the big challenges, though, when it comes to tech policy and working this out at the state level is that what we're talking about are global companies. Um, and so what's happening is that these companies are deciding whether or not these markets matter to them, um, whether they want to kind of comply with the regulations or not. And so many of these companies are deciding, OK, North Carolina, too small of a market. We're just going to cut you off. This is actually happening at the international level as well. There's been a series of online news b- bills that have been passed from Aust- uh, in Australia Canada tried to do the same thing. Facebook and Google just decided that they were no longer going to serve news in that country. So then they make the decision about whether or not it is worth it to them to comply.
0: So I'm going to make an analogy here. If it's bad, please throw it back in my face. But I can't help but think a little bit about environmental issues, regulations. I mean, uh, the People's Republic of Carborough, due respect, can can pass a resolution, can do something, can, can outlaw, can say we're going to go carbon neutral by X or Y. But due respect to carborough or north carolina or montana it only matters so much unless the entire ecosystem gets involved is that am i am i mirroring that back fairly
4: yeah that's exactly right and that um you know that we really saw that with the conversations about tiktok that happened last year uh, is that you know even if tiktok was banned that really does very little for privacy if we don't see federal privacy mm-hmm. regulation at the same time Facebook and Google are doing many of the same activities. Brokers can still buy and sell data that exists out there. So if you do kind of one small thing over here, it doesn't really impact what's happening on a broader scale.
0: Matt, as for issues of federalism, in what ways are state governments limited? Where can they not make policy because it conflicts with some sort of federal rule?
1: So the Dormant Commerce Clause exists to protect against too much balkanization of policy within the states. So Congress has the exclusive right to regulate interstate commerce. If states take action that impedes on that ability, then law will be struck down as unconstitutional. As Brooke said previously, the First Amendment also works, I think, as a guardrail to protect against certain kinds of state action in this area. But there certainly is lots that states can regulate. So I think there are reasons that it makes a lot more sense as Robin's suggesting to have a federal privacy law, but I also think privacy is something that is within state power, I believe, um, for them to enact laws in that area. And one of the interesting things that we've actually seen in privacy is that there was going into the passage of comprehensive privacy laws at the state level, there was a lot of concern by industry that there would be the development of a patchwork, that there'd be a law in North Carolina that wouldn't work with the law in Virginia, and companies would be forced to have different regimes for citizens in one state versus another. We actually haven't seen it develop in that Way So there was a privacy law introduced in Washington, the Washington Privacy Act, that's become the model for most of the privacy legislation passed at the state level. 13 states now have comprehensive privacy laws on the books. 12 of them follow that Washington Privacy Act model. So what we've sort of seen is the creation of a de facto national standard by states enacting laws one at a time. And I think that's valuable. I agree with the point that in many of these issues, what we'd want to see would be federal laws. But I I don't think we should Dismiss states entirely. State laws are really important in terms of influencing how people experience technology.
4: We're actually seeing a very similar dynamic internationally as well. Mm. Uh, because tech moves so fast, many of these countries are just doing copycats of other bills. So, like I said before, um, Canada has copied Australia's online news bill, South Africa is going to um, do the same. Many countries are copying the DSA. At an international level, that creates like a bit of a problem because you have these laws that were passed in one political context with one set of rules that are now being brought into another. Um, So while it might kind of work at the state level, it's it's becoming kind of messy internationally.
0: That's Robin Kaplan. She's here in studio with Brooke Medina, Zach Eans, and Matt Peralt. We're talking about tech policy here on Due South. There's lots to get to, and I really don't know if we're going to get to all of it, but I I want to go back to something you just mentioned, Matt. I want to unpack it. You said 13 states have privacy laws. What's a privacy law? And I should note, North Carolina does not have one of these comprehensive privacy laws, so
1: please tell us what they are and why North Carolina doesn't have one. Yeah, so there are obviously lots of different permutations, but basically they have to do with what your rights are in terms of data collection, what a user's rights are vis-a-vis the companies that collect data. So they have to do with what data uh, companies can collect, what kinds of disclosures they have to make to users, how users can opt out of certain kinds of data collection – sometimes the kinds of transparency that companies are obligated to provide publicly about their practices. And you're right that North Carolina doesn't have one. And I think that that's really interesting. Um, North Carolina, I think, in so many ways, is well positioned to be a leader in tech policy. Um, we have a vibrant innovation ecosystem here all throughout the state. Many large tech companies have offices located here. We have many homegrown tech companies like Epic Games and SAS. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we look at the at the technologies that are likely to be prevalent in our lives in the future, like artificial intelligence, it's my guess that engineers and talent and entrepreneurs in North Carolina are going to play a big role in those issues. But North Carolina, I think, has lagged behind a large number of other states on tech policy issues, and I don't really know why that's the case.
0: Well, that doesn't really help me because that's my follow-up. Why is that the <laughs> case, right? Like, I, I was going to make a Rip Van Winkle reference in North Carolina's <laughs> slow propensity to get things done over the years. I mean, do you is it is it the money behind the scenes? Is it those who are in political
1: office and have particular agendas? Like, So, so again, I, I don't want to dismiss lobbying as a potential reason, but on it doesn't strike me as all of the reason. And when you look now at the development of privacy legislation, for instance, I think there is an opportunity for bipartisan consensus on this issue. Many states are following the Washington Privacy Act model. Lots of companies have supported that as a model. If North Carolina were to pass a privacy bill modeled on the Washington Privacy Act, I don't think that creates compliance issues for companies. So I don't think you'd see a lot of corporate opposition. But yet, citizens of North Carolina would get some basic privacy rights, and that would be meaningful. And so it seems to me, if you're more pro-business on the right, and you're um, oriented around user rights and user protections on the left, that there's an opportunity, at least with privacy reform, to work together.
0: What are the ideological battle lines when it comes to tech policy, whether it's here or other states? Uh, can you give us an overview? I'm not looking for you to say, well, the the the, the, the member of the chamber from this part, of, I, it, broadly speaking, does tech policy look noticeably different, whether what's being proposed or enacted in California, democratically controlled, versus, say, uh, Tennessee, neighboring state, Republican controlled? Are there obvious differences here or not? Because I'm, I am truly ignorant. I do, I have no idea.
4: I mean, for some of the things that are happening federally, what we're seeing is actually a lot of agreement on the I- idea that the law needs to be changed, but um, disagreement on what parts of the law. So for Section 230, Rep- Republicans tend to take issue with the good faith provision. Democrats tend to take fifth with uh, take uh, issue with the limited liability provision. When it comes to Cosa, which is um, a Some federal legislation that's been proposed um, also to address kids' online safety, what we're seeing is that we have these kind of big concepts like online harms that are being interpreted quite differently depending on where you are in the political landscape. So what is online harm to a Democrat might be different than it is to a Republican.
0: We're more than halfway through this show, and I haven't, I don't think, said the word money. I don't think any of you have necessarily said the word money, but we're talking about policy. And money, money, money is a huge driver in what policy moves and when and why. And I want somebody to just jump in here and tell me who's putting lots of money behind. We've mentioned lobbyists a few times, and that is maybe synonymous with money. Uh, But where's the money in tech policy? Who wants what?
1: I don't know if crickets is good or bad. Well, I think there's there's just money in so many different places mm-hmm. in, in it. Like when but Zach yeah. um, talks about Axios, his employer, and some of the fears related to AI. I think one of the things that we're seeing now is who's going to get what portion of the pie mm-hmm. and traditional media organizations have been very frustrated about the portion of the online advertising pie that they've received. And so that's driving some of the interest in passing Australia, now Canada, sounds like maybe South Africa style regulations related to news. So that is a big driving force. Often those debates get framed as if they're about contests around democracy or accuracy. I think a lot of the thing motivating them is who's going to get what portion of the pie.
4: And this isn't the first time in history that we've seen this. Um, So particularly with what we're seeing with platforms and publishers, we saw a very similar dynamic happening between the 1920s and the 1930s between press and radio, Mm -hmm. uh, where a very similar dynamic around advertising and um, the use of content that was coming in from publishers over radio and uh, publishers not feeling like they were being compensated for it um, led to a lot of proposals for uh, regulation around that time as well.
0: About 30 seconds left. The final word.
4: I mean, money
2: talks, but something that Matt had mentioned about the outsized attribution to lobbying being the issue here, I I agree with to an extent. But I think we're also maybe needing to pay attention to the fact that there are lobbyists in other industries
3: Mm. that have
2: crossovers with tech that have some uh, deep pockets and they're speaking into maybe the regulation framework of tech.
4: One thing that I'm quite curious about is that a lot of the regulations that are being proposed, particularly at the state level, have to do with age verification. Um, there are a series of companies that are poised to do that work, um, notably um, banks and um, fintech companies. So it would be important to look at and, their role.
3: And on the antitrust side, I do think that a lot of this is following what private companies are doing, like Epic Games suing Apple or Google over how the app stores are operating. I mean, the attorney general's all followed suit used using many of the same facts that Epic Games was arguing and filed their own lawsuit. So I do think a lot of the private tech companies that are coming up against this smaller portion of the pie are, you know, a lot of the policy is following that as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Tech policy in North Carolina, across the South, the United States, and really are around the world uh, is what we are discussing today on Do South. In a moment, we'll uh, get into child protection as well as artificial intelligence. We'll be right back. This is Due South on North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. Welcome back. It's Due South on WUNC. I'm Jeff Tabiri.
2: At our nation's capital, where Senate lawmakers are actually on the Hill for a judiciary hearing on protecting children online, both Democrats and Republicans vowing to put their differences aside to come together and actually take action when it comes to keeping our children safe on social media.
0: That's a clip from ABC News, as last year, Congress considered and deliberated on some tech policy, though. I'm not entirely clear what Congress accomplished on child protections. Did they make any major strides, Matt Peralt?
1: Depends how you define strides. Did they pass legislation? No. Did they raise awareness about the issue through hearings and letters and that sort of thing? Yeah, certainly. Matt Peralt's here on Due South. So too is
0: Brooke Medina, Robin Kaplan, and Zach Eanes. And I want to spend some time now talking about something that feels like it's on many people's minds, whether they have children or are around children, nieces, nephews, teachers, whatever it may be. Kids are everywhere, right? I love kids. I have two of them. Uh, North Carolina has made uh, some progress on this as well. The report that you recently co-authored, Matt, we've talked about it earlier in the program. You note in here, quote, both parties ramped up efforts on child safety, but Republican-led states passed four times the number of new laws as Democratic-led states, close quote. That's interesting. How come?
1: I think there are a variety of different factors, but Republicans are particularly interested in um, ensuring that parents have control over the experience that that kids have online and that kids are protected from certain kinds of harmful content, including pornography. Robin, you've done a lot of research on verification.
0: If you can give us an overview of who's doing what where and who's done nothing.
4: Uh, So there's kind of two sets of laws that are being done around verification. Um, There are a set of laws that are aimed at controlling access of minors to pornography. That's what we have seen pass in North Carolina with the PAVE Act. There's also another series of bills um, that are uh, trying to control access uh, for teens in particular to their ac- to their use of social media in general. Um, those laws have been passed by states like Utah, uh, Arkansas, Louisiana, I believe, as well. There's another set of laws that's been passed by uh, states like California that are more like privacy laws. Um, They're trying to kind of control what types of data are collected about young people and what it can be used for. And there might be a verification component of those laws as well.
0: Here in North Carolina, a piece of legislation was enacted last year and had some, I don't know if they were intended or unintended outcomes, but they had some tended outcomes. Tell us about House Bill 8, please.
4: So House Bill 8 is an age verification law that was passed to make sure that minors were not accessing pornographic materials. There's a couple of components to the law. Basically, what they're saying is that if you are a, a platform that has one third of material that is illicit in nature or that would be offensive to minors, you have to enact age verification methods. So that's using a third party to verify the age of users. It's asking for things like ID. Uh, Companies like Pornhub and RedTube in response have blocked access um, for North Carolina residents to those websites.
0: And
1: is it working?
4: Is it working? I, this only passed in this. This was only enacted on January 1st.
1: I think the question it's a, It's. A, I actually think it's a great question because the, <laughs> then the then the, the counter is, well, what does work look mm-hmm. like? So if your goal is to have all North Carolina residents denied access to certain pornography websites, there are and apps and services that are available throughout the country, then I guess it is. Is on a path to working because there are companies that are now denying access to North Carolina residents. Or from a free speech standpoint, is that not working?
4: I mean, that is so there was a very similar law that was passed in Texas last year. That one was challenged on free speech grounds that it um, limited the speech of adults as well. It was it was actually challenged on a number of different factors, one of which was this one third rule. The one third rule means that a lot of platforms like Instagram or Google or Twitter that might actually have pornographic materials are not actually held to the same standard by this law. Many of the porn companies like Pornhub are taking issue with that. They're saying that this is kind of unfair, um, that they're being held to the standard while these other companies are not.
2: Yeah, I mean, Pornhub came out and said that they just had made a decision at that point in time to rather than to subject themselves to adhering to these regulations was just to completely, you know, back out of that market here in North Carolina. Um, but I think one of the things that a legislation in particular, is, it, the limitations of it highlight are that in a digital age, we have things like VPNs. People can still access mm-hmm. Uh, Pornhub from North Carolina, it's just they would utilize a VPN. The same thing happened in Utah. So there are workarounds that adults can access for this. But when we go to just like the child component of this, the child safety aspect of it, I think there's not enough conversation around how parents. Involvement in their child's online lives are is critical to this conversation. So for all of the I would imagine good intentions of legislators when it comes to creating these sort of frameworks, I think in practice, it actually creates some privacy issues for yeah. adults and children because of the requirement to upload IDs, for example, um, and keep that in a third party database. What if that gets hacked? Um, also, where are um parental involvement uh, components to this, and where's that conversation?
0: I'm Jeff. This is Due South on WNC. We're chatting with Robin, Brooke, Matt, and Zach, and I want to just stick with parental involvement right there. We can move to social media. We can talk about how you uh, are just involved in your children's consumption. Matt and Robin, you have younger children. Brooke, you have uh, children who are older in the range of 10 to 20. Uh, so let me have it. Do you have an approach? How do you do it?
2: Yeah, so uh, so I have four children, and so they do span these different sort of uh, milestones when it comes to how I would want them to access technology. Uh, my ten year old, for example, we have you know kind of like an ice phone in case of emergency, but there are no other additional features to it that would uh, that would allow him to access things that I had concerns about. But I'm also very involved in my other children's. Uh, lives, my my 10th grader, my 12th grader, where, you know, we have certain filtering services and I get reports daily. And that way, if there is an issue that's a, a flag for me, I can talk with my kids about it. But also it's part of just an ongoing conversation I, as their mother, have with them because it, I've got their best interest at heart. I want to make sure they're okay and that they are not always succumbing to the barrage of the influences of social media. But that's my role, not government's role.
0: Mm-hmm. Robin, you've got a f- four-year-old. So hopefully he or she is not, I don't know, getting into too much trouble. But do you have parameters that are set or are you already thinking about here's what we will do when the little one is seven or 11
4: or 16? I mean, my child my child is young. Uh, and so uh, what my child knows of the internet, I have shown him. Um, and I have a lot of control and a lot of supervision over what he watches online. Um, he knows that Netflix exists. He knows that he can watch Lego on YouTube. Um, and that's kind of, you know, real, really the limits of his knowledge of the Internet. He knows that I can look things up as well. Um, I have not yet thought about what happens uh, when he gets older. I think it's really important to teach kids really about the limits of their privacy online. Um, and so making sure that they know that, you know, you as a parent, you also could probably see what they are doing online. If they're using shared devices yeah. um, is really important for them to know uh, so they know who else can can see that information
0: best practices or changes you'd like to see? You can also build on those two answers. Yeah.
1: I mean, I'm in a similar position, Robin, with two kids under four. So I don't think I've yet confronted this in the kind of intimate and detailed way that Brooke has. But I I really like the question because I think a lot of the debate around child safety externalizes a lot of these issues. It's really easy to say I blame X company for not protecting my kids enough or for what, you know, various different things of what they do. But I think on this issue, a lot of the decisions are decisions that we have to make as families, as parents, as individuals about what our relationship to technology is. This doesn't really apply as much to my kids, but my family has a practice of doing a tech Sabbath now. We're, we're Jewish, so we start on Friday evening, and we try to be off of our phones for 24 hours. And that might seem, in the way that I say it, like it's an easy thing. Oh,
3: no, because- no.
1: Because you have this hard line and you just turn the technology off and that's it. But it actually is really complicated. Like if we want to go for a hike on Shabbat, which is the kind of thing I think is sort of consistent with the ethos of the day, do we look up how to get there? Are we permitting ourselves to get lost because we're not using Google Maps? There are all these components of technology in our lives that make it hard to set those boundaries. And so for us, like a lot of the wrestling is this kind of internal thing about the kind of family we want to have.
4: I just have one. So there's there are certain features of these platforms that, you know, I would love to be able to control in, in that I can't. Um, so auto auto play is one of those things when my child reaches the end of a show and then the next one just keeps playing. That is, you know, a source of disagreement because then he wants to watch the the rest of the show. But I also think it's really important. We think a lot about kids' use of technology. We also need to think about our use of technology, Mm -hmm. how they are seeing us on their phones. Exactly what Matt said. Um, They are watching us. um, They are watching us interact with technology in a lot of key ways. And we often don't think about our own use of technology of social media and other
0: platforms. We don't, I try to think about it often. There's certainly a psychological component of it, or it's a signaling component, I think, as you're alluding to there, Robin. Uh, If my five-year-old or my two-year-old sees me constantly pulling it out of my pocket, they wanna play, they wanna read a a book, they wanna take a walk in the neighborhood or go see the dog down the way or shoot some baskets. And like, am I showing them that this thing is more important than them? Because of course it isn't, but like it's this recalibration of priority that admittedly can be hard at times. We've got just a few minutes left. I want to make sure we spend a few minutes uh, on artificial intelligence, AI. When I think about AI, a few of the first things that come to mind personally for me, chat GBT, phony political advertisements, misinformation, and plagiarism in the academic world. I have a uh, childhood friend who's a a high school teacher, and he has dealt with uh, some of this. I'm curious, Zach, what first comes to mind for you when it comes to AI?
3: Yeah, I, I think it's really changed how I interact with the internet and media you know, especially if I'm on social media sites, like I think we're presented more and more with images that have been produced by AI or enhanced with AI. And I think it's getting really hard to tell the difference. Um, And I feel like I'm a digitally native person and I have like a pretty good understanding of, of these, like how these technologies are starting to emerge. But I get tricked, you know, frequently all the time. If I'm just scrolling on Reddit and someone says, posts on a popular forum, like, look at this really interesting picture. And you're like, if you look closer, you know, there are these weird weirdly subtle changes that you might someone might have six fingers and you're like okay I've noticed that this is AI but what you know, in a couple years time I mean this might get really good and I do worry about like people you know mass information getting out there that is a bad actor might have used AI to influence something and I I I do think there hasn't really been much from a policy standpoint to address that all yet
0: what theoretically can be done from a policy standpoint to address this? Like, I don't. I, let me rephrase. Not theoretically. Realistically, what do you think we could see at the General Assembly in Raleigh or Sacramento or, or or Congress? Like, what do you what do you realistically think could be in the sphere of what gets done on AI here in twenty twenty four or beyond? Uh,
4: Crickets I think... again. Go ahead. <laughs>
2: Well, I think first off, people, particularly lawmakers, need to have just a better grasp of what its uses are and uh, the applications of it in ways that Maybe aren't readily evident. So, Zach mentions things like maybe deep fakes, for example. I was uh, scrolling through Twitter the other day and I see a Jennifer Aniston deep fake video of her like doing a MacBook giveaway, and it's not her. And you watch it closely hmm. and you can tell it's not her. But to your point, Zach, I mean, things are going to improve over the years. But thinking about like other uses of AI, such as on the medical front and the ways in which it has allowed people to access life-saving medical care. Um, even uh, Robin mentioned Spotify earlier today, the way AI can curate my Spotify list and, list and give me a good listening experience. I mean, there's so many non-nefarious ways in which we interact with AI that I I don't know if Congress is quite ready to tackle all of this in in a way that is not going to use a, a bludgeon when they really just need a scalpel. And uh, so... I think actually preceding any sort of legislative movement is a long conversation about AI ethics and applying ethics in our digital age.
0: It might be an obvious answer, but the former political reporter here has got to throw it out there to the panel. What's the biggest concern you all have with AI and 2024 elections?
1: So I have a a very specific one, which is that we don't learn. Um, and so I think on a lot of tech policy issues, the dynamic that's set up is that we need to do bold action that just solves a problem. And if we don't do that, we haven't done anything. So if we don't break up big tech companies, then we haven't addressed issues related to corporate concentration and control. Or if we don't end all incorrect information online, we haven't done anything to address accuracy and falsity and quality of content. And that just sets us off to often, I think, be in a position where we're disappointed with policy outcomes and not recognize the outcomes that we have. There have been the positive outcomes we've had. Um, there are a lot of there's a lot of legislation that's been passed at the state level and the Biden administration issued an executive order on AI that really seek to gather information and learn. And that seems like the right phase to be in for the early stages of a te- of technology. And so my hope is that in 2024, in the election, we see a lot of experimentation on the policy side and on the product side. And we set up mechanisms to get feedback and information that enables us to be stronger and better and smarter in future elections. We have just
0: a couple of moments left here on Do South on this tech policy roundtable conversation, and we're going to end with something of a kicker, something a little bit lighter. And I'm hoping one of you will raise a hand, raise your eyebrows, and uh, we're going to just drop one term on our listeners, a term that I found so absurd in my preparation that I thought, what is this? I need someone to just give me a little bit of context. Will one of you please tell me, define for us and tell us where the term and what it means, jawboning. Wait, what? So Robin
1: the, said, wait, j- what?
0: So that, jo- that job I feel seen.
1: Jawboning is, is a really important concept. So um, <laughs> <laughs> that
4: I don't know. <laughs>
0: so
1: so jawboning jo- is when a government official puts pressure on a private company to change its practices on speech, where that official would be constitutionally barred from doing that via legislation. So Congress can't restrict what kinds of COVID related information a platform like Twitter or Meta carries. Um, And so if they're unable to do that, they can't – someone from the Biden administration can't pick up the phone then and put pressure on the company to remove it or else, you know, and or else can mean uh, we're going to file an antitrust suit against you or we're going to increase taxes that you face.
2: Yeah, so – On that, there has been some applications over COVID as a result of this. And so jawboning is really hard to actually identify and have a paper trail of. So I think that's something that listeners would benefit from just looking into a little bit more is how has jawboning actually um, been prevalent in politics over the past several years, particularly over COVID? Um, But what do we actually do about it?
0: Jawboning. Give it a Google and then head over to (laughs) dosouthradio.org and check out some uh, recent conversations and segments as well. Hope that you have learned as much as I have uh, from this hour of conversation. A big thank you to our panelists. Robin Kaplan is an assistant professor at Duke University's Sanford School of Public Policy. She's also a senior lecturing fellow in the Center for Science and Society at Duke University. Zach Eanes is a reporter with Axios Raleigh, and he is a co-scribe of the excellent uh, daily newsletter that comes out of Axios Raleigh. Brooke Medina is vice president of communications at the conservative-leaning John Locke Foundation, and Matt Peralt is director of the Center on Technology Policy at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Gang, thanks so much. Really enjoyed it.
3: Thank 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 you.
0: My name is Jeff Tiberi. This episode of Do South was produced by Rachel McCarthy and engineered by Denarius Thomas. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.